Good morning, church. Today we're uh, back in John chapter 6. I'll be reading verse 22 through verse 40. I suggest you follow along in your own Bibles, and then we'll pray for our time and study this together. John chapter 6, verse 22 says, On the following day, when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other boat there except that one, except that one which his disciples had entered, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. However, other boats came from Tiberias, near the place where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they also got into boats and came to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for food, for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. Then they said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Therefore they said to him, what sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one whom comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that he, of, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing but should raise it up on the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Uh, Father, we pray that, um, knowing, we pray knowing that you give good gifts to your children, uh, we ask that we would be receptive to the good things that you want to give us. Uh, we thank you that, that your Son, Jesus Christ, is the bread of life, and we rely on him for our satisfaction and our survival. And I, I pray that in the preaching of this word now, and as it's posted online and, and watched on people's computers and TVs, um, that you would have your way in, in applying your eternal word to your church in such a way um, that your church grows up more into the image of your son. We ask that for your glory and in your name. Amen. Amen. So you, you notice it's a, it's a longer passage here, and it'll take a while to get through, but there are... Uh, a couple key verses in, in this passage, very important, definitely worth memorizing. Verse 29, Jesus answered them and said, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. That's important. That gives us a nice little formula of what is the work of God. Jesus says it's to believe. The work that God gives to people is the work of faith. Verse 35, uh, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. This is a very key verse, and it's one that we'll, we'll think on more next week even. We'll do uh, the Bread of Life Part 1 today, and then the Bread of Life Part 2 
next week because Jesus is going to repeat this true statement that he is the bread of life. So let's set the scene. It's been a long day followed by a long night. Jesus and his disciples were trying to go on their on their retreat to come up. He uh, told the disciples to come aside by yourself for a while and rest. Uh, but then the crowds find them. And so Jesus feeds them and he heals their sick and he, and he teaches them. But when they were fed, they wanted to start a political movement and force Jesus to be their king. And that's not something that Jesus is very interested in. Uh, he would one day tell Pontius Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. And that's something that these people just don't understand. It, it's something that people still don't understand. But Jesus protects his disciples from the temptation of seeking a worldly kingdom instead of a spiritual one. And he, sent, he compels them to get into the boat, sends them across the water. And, and that, that ends the long day and then the long night begins. Six to eight hours of rowing against the wind. The disciples only make it halfway across the Sea of Galilee. Jesus comes to them walking on the water. And they cry out. They're terrified. And then Jesus comforts them. He gets in the boat with them, and then, poof, they're across the water, right where they intended to go. Pretty cool. Um, now, it's, it's the morning, and no one has slept very well, of course. Uh, but at least they had escaped the multitude, they think, but not for long. Um, so in verse 22 through 24, which I'm not going to read again, but it says basically that the people had tracked down Jesus over on Beth the Bethsaida side of the lake, you know, they, they had stayed there overnight, but in the morning they noticed Jesus isn't there, and the disciples weren't there, so since they've got boats, they go in the boats and they go f hunt down Jesus again. And, and we know that the crowds are dangerous. Jesus is very clear about uh, his low opinion of popularity. Uh, his low opinion of popular opinion. The people of this particular crowd is going to, they're, they're going to receive uh, a rebuke, really, from Jesus in this very passage. But but they're going to find Jesus, and they've got boats to chase him down, and so they do. And now, before you praise this crowd for their dedication to seeking out Jesus, because that looks like a good thing, doesn't it? You have to remember that Jesus tried to get away from this crowd on purpose. And remember, before you say, well, these are seekers, these are people seeking the truth, Jeremiah says, there's none who seeks after God. That's not really the equation that works. These people are intently seeking after Jesus, but they're not really seeking after the heart of God. They're not seeking after God. They're not doing so in order to get uh, closer to, uh, to the divine. They're doing so in order to get more food. They're, they want bread, or they want to make him the leader of their new political party. And so we see that this crowd is intense, they're dedicated, they're, they're almost militant in their pursuit of Jesus, and, and that's how people get when their passions are selfish um, and, and political. You know, people get intense when they get after what they really, really want. In this case, it's bread. And they get really, really dedicated. Crowds get very dedicated when they are following their, their political person, uh, political campaigns, capitalize on this, and Jesus is trying to get away from it. Now, should we be dedicated to following Jesus, finding Jesus, like these people are? Well, we should be dedicated in following Jesus and finding Jesus, but not like these people. It's telling that these people are almost rabidly eager to pursue a political messiah. But these people do not have the same fervor for a savior who forgives sins, who dies for the sinner, who sacrifices himself for the sinner. You know, it's in this chapter, we'll talk about it next week, 
But it's in this chapter where many of his disciples leave never to follow him again. So they, they're, they're fickle, they're changeable. They see Jesus at this point as a means to an end. And Jesus is going to say, I am the end. I am the bread. Are you still willing to follow me? And the, and the answer is they, they wouldn't be. But I'm getting my, ahead of myself a little bit. And now there's, a, there's another contrast, I think, between these false pursuers, false seekers, false believers, and true believers uh, that we see in the book of Acts. You know, these, these uh, fans of Jesus, they pursue with all their might the one who feeds them. And I think it's interesting that in, in Acts we see a church pursue with all their might the hungry, the spiritually hungry, the lost. Followers of Christ follow Christ by pursuing the lost with him. So, anyway, the crowd pursues a politician, but they do not love a savior. They probably don't even see their need for a savior. But they find him, and they ask him in verse 25, Rabbi, when did you come here? And in verse 59, if you just glance down at the end of the passage, in uh, verse 59 it says, These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. So that's where they find him. They find him in the synagogue teaching. And Jesus is going to teach, but they say, When did you come here? You didn't have time. But Jesus answered them, verse 26, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. The first thing you probably notice is that Jesus doesn't answer their question at all. They ask, when did you come here? And remember, because the disciples left in a boat, and Jesus didn't, uh, but he beat them across the lake somehow, so they're not quite sure what route he took. So they're asking, when did you get here? They're really asking, how did you get here? And wouldn't they love the story of how he got there? Wouldn't they be so impressed to hear that Jesus walked on water, but Jesus doesn't tell them what they're after? Now, there are many times when Jesus doesn't engage with the desires and the questions of our hearts, and this isn't rude. He knows that what you need isn't always what you want. And he's very interested in giving you what you need. They want answers. What they need is salvation. They think they want bread. What they need is Jesus, the bread of life. So Jesus answers the heart issue right away by saying, I know why you're seeking me, and it's not for the right reasons. They're following him because he fed them. Now, he says, you seek me not because you saw the signs. Um... Now, there's a couple ways to understand this. See, uh, he says that, on the one hand, he could be saying, you're not seeking me because you saw the miracles. Now, that, that would have been another problem. Jesus says in Matthew 12, 39, that an adulterous generation seeks after a sign. That wouldn't necessarily have been better. Um, but another way to see this is, uh, see, understand what Jesus is saying is by seeing it like this. Jesus is saying, you aren't following me because you follow the signs to get to me. Remember, all the signs of Jesus point somewhere, and they point to the divinity of Christ, the sufficiency of Christ, the glory of God in Christ. And so he says, you're not following me because you've understood the signs that have pointed you here. You're not, you didn't follow the course that I set out. You didn't follow the breadcrumbs to me. You just followed the bread. You just want, you just want food. Um, so they, they weren't seeking after a sign. That would still be a problem. They were seeking after food. And that might be worse, even, than seeking after the sign that the adulterous and evil generation seeks after. They rode across a huge sea to find the guy that gave them a free sandwich. Now, there's nothing wrong with a good sandwich, but Jesus is so much 
better than that. He's worthy of so much more. And, and he can provide so much more. So now crowds in the Bible, as I mentioned already today, crowds are almost always problematic. 99% of the time. There are exceptions, like in heaven, uh, for, and, you know, for a little bit in Acts, so that goes downhill for a while too. You know, but usually crowds are fickle, they're volatile, they're untrustworthy. Majority rule in scripture is never a good thing. And here we have a crowd that yesterday wanted to force Jesus into being their their leader, the leader of their new political revolution. And today they're after him for free bread. But what I want you to see is Jesus is not dismissive of the crowd. He knows that they're dangerous, but he's not stingy with them. Verse 27, he actually gives them a generous offer. And we saw the day before... Um, when they came to him, he had compassion on this crowd as sheep without a shepherd. So even though the crowd is dangerous, and even though the crowd is usually wrong, Jesus still loves the unwashed masses. <laughs> he still loves the crowds. And in verse 27, he says, Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. Now this is very much like what Jesus says to the woman at the well, right? She's there for water. But Jesus says, if you knew, if you knew who it was who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Jesus is always doing this. He says, you think you want this. I know that you think think you want this thing, but I'm going to give you the fulfillment of that thing, the full spiritual reality of that thing. Guys, when, when you see the world like this, every moment is holy, because you're, you're hungry, but you didn't eat, because you didn't eat breakfast, and the pastor talks too long, but God gave you the experience of hunger so that you could know a truer hunger for something that more truly satisfies. He leads you through that experience. You're thirsty, but Jesus satisfies like the best water you can drink. You think you want, you know, I, I don't know, fill in the blank. You, you think you want money, but Jesus is true riches. You think you want family or a different kind of family than the one you have. And, and, but we see God is a father and Jesus is a brother and a husband. And he is the fulfillment of every human relationship that foreshadows him. You think you want life. We do all we can to stay alive and you focus on your health and you avoid risk, but Jesus gives life more abundant. But only the ones who lose their lives find it. And Jesus is saying, I want to take what you're giving me here, which is just a lust for bread. And I see that you desire that and I want, I want to point that in a better direction. And I'm telling you, it's not worth it doing the way you're doing it. Don't labor for the food which perishes. You guys, you're all tired out from rowing across the lake to find food. But when that food is gone, it's gone. You're just going to get hungry again. So don't work yourself to the bone for the things that don't last. Work for the food which endures to everlasting life. Jesus says, labor for that. Now, there's a theme that John is threading through this part of the gospel. And a few weeks ago, when we were in John chapter 5, we saw that Jesus made this loose reference, sort of a, a nod, to Isaiah 55. And, and in Isaiah 55, it says, Incline your ear and come to me, hear that your soul shall live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, the sure mercies of David. That's Isaiah 55, verse 3. And Jesus says, Hear and believe, and I'll give you everlasting life. That's what he told the crowds in John 5. And it's sort of a play on this verse in Isaiah 55 to hear and believe or hear and receive everlasting life. 
and where God said, incline your ear and come to me, hearing and coming to God, coming to God and believing in God, believing in God and receiving everlasting life. This is all a theme that John is, is connecting through Jesus' words to Isaiah. And it's kind of a cool network to find. Um, it's a play on the verse in, in Isaiah 55 and, and another one of the many claims Jesus makes to his equality with God. Because as God says, hear me and get life, Jesus says, now hear me and get life. Well, in John chapter 6, Jesus goes back to this same chapter in Isaiah, Isaiah 55, and he brings out the references to himself once more. In Isaiah 55, verse 2, it says, Why do you spend money for what is not bread, and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good, and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Do you see how Jesus is expounding on this same concept? He's saying, you're working for bread, but there's something better worth working for. And you, you spend money on that which is not true bread, but I can give you something that is abundant and your soul will delight in it. If you go back to the beginning of Isaiah 55, you'll read that this bread is available to every single person, with or without resources. It says, and you, have no, you who have no money, come, buy and eat. So Jesus says to the crowd, the Son of Man will give you this kind of bread. He says that in the, in the passage in John. Now we have a very Christian paradox here between man's effort or labor and God's grace or free gift. Jesus encourages work in this chapter. He says, don't work for temporal things, work for eternal things. And then he says, the thing that you're working for, I'm just going to give it to you. Now this is maybe confusing, but it's always the way it is, so get used to it. Yes, Jesus wants you, wants you to pursue eternity with all your heart and seek hard after God to spend your life for his glory in promoting his kingdom. He wants you to use your resources for his glory, but he still just gives you the bread that satisfies. It's free. You don't earn it. It's free. Eternity and all its rewards are still given to you just because God is generous, not because you're a hard worker. Now, what Jesus said, it seems to have made them curious, which is certainly what he intended, and usually what he intends, in, uh, judging from how he talks to the crowds, uh, because now they're, they're asking better questions. They're not just asking, well, how did you get here? Where'd you come from? Where's the boat? Was it fast? Now they're saying, well, what should we do? That's a much better question, isn't it? Verse 28 says, Then they said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Now, haven't you asked the question, What do you want me to do, God? Well, here it is. Here's one of the answers. He wants you to believe him. The work of God is to believe in him whom, in, in him whom he sent. Believe in Jesus. That's the work of God. This idea really shines a light on the whole, uh, a whole lot of other passages that talk about good works and doing good. To believe God is the work that God has for us. Now, we, we've talked about belief before. We looked at this, especially when we were in John 3.16 and the passage surrounding that. We looked at it in depth. Um, whoever believes on him has eternal life. Well, well, the teaching of Jesus here in John 6 is very much an explanation of his teaching in John 3. He's talking about everlasting life. He's talking about laboring. Not, not laboring for the temporal, but now for the eternal. 
And it seems like the people pick up on the fact that Jesus is talking about working for eternal life. I mean, you can see that, right? You, you can see that he says, you want bread. I have something that gives eternal satisfaction, and I want you to work for that. Well, righteous and religious people everywhere will get in line to find out what it is they have to do to get the eternal blessings, right? And these people are no different. They say, well, what shall we do? What shall we do that we may work the works of God? So they have clearly drawn the line successfully, and we'll give them credit for it. They have clearly drawn the line between laboring for the food which endures to eternal life, that spiritual food, and doing the works of God. If we do the things that God wants us to do, then we will receive the benefits that God has to offer. That's their formula. That's what they're working with. That's why they're asking the question. This is these people's version of what must I do to be saved? And Jesus answers them in his version of believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. He says, believe. That's the work of God. The work of God that you have to do in order to receive the spiritual food that satisfies is the work of faith, the work of belief. Jesus has shown them the way. He has shown them the freedom of the gospel. He has offered salvation. He has given them the simple command that comes to each one. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. And the response to these of these people very quickly, right away, after they say, he says, believe in me, believe in the one whom he sent, and then you'll receive all this satisfying, nourishing, uh, survival food that is the bread from heaven. Believe and you'll be saved. And the response very quick is, do a trick. That's what they say. Verse 30. Therefore they said to him, what sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. I am more than a little bit frustrated with these people when I read this. They say, what sign will you perform that we may believe you? Now, obviously, as Jesus said, you, you didn't follow me because you, you saw the signs. They didn't see Jesus' previous miracles as signs that pointed to his divinity. They missed it. They just didn't accept those things as evidence. Now, and you're probably thinking that the obvious thing, wasn't feeding the 5,000 enough? Most of this crowd had followed him from the other side of the lake, where he had taken a boy's lunchable and turned it into thousands of meals plus leftovers. He just did that. And didn't Jesus say, you didn't follow me because of the signs? Well, apparently they're willing to challenge that and say, no, we really, we really are that shallow. We want a sign. We want more tricks. Give us a show. And then we'll believe. Oh dear. It's hard to imagine that these people could still be asking for miracles after all Jesus had already shown them. However, there is something to consider here. In Matthew's Gospel, it, it mentions that in addition to the crowd from yesterday, who had eaten the, the feast, some of the scribes and Pharisees had come up from Jerusalem to see Jesus in Capernaum to investigate. So it's possible that these are the ones who are asking, give us a sign. We heard a rumor that you can make food happen, so let's do that. But whoever it was, it was a bad question. Uh, it was made in bad faith. And it's not the first time, even in John's Gospel, when Jesus made the whip of cords and threw out the money changers, where, is the, where the Jews asked, so that, uh, you know, what sign do you show us since you do these things? That was John chapter 2, verse 18. 
And, and twice in Matthew, chapter 12 and chapter 16, Jesus says, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. He says, don't ask that. Stop asking for a sign. And the one who says, I'll believe when, dot, 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 that person is usually, not always, but usually, they're not actually interested in believing. Now, Thomas is an exception. Of the, he, he's, he's an example of the alternative. He says, I'll believe when I see it, and Jesus shows him, and then he believes. That's fine. Jesus welcomes reasonable investigation. It was God who said, come, let us reason together in, in Isaiah chapter 1. But what the leaders of the Jews did with Jesus, and what the crowd that had already seen his miracles are doing, that's not intellectually honest investigation. How could it be when they'd already seen the miracles? It was greedy of them to be asking for more. Now these people already asking for a sign, or sorry, they had already seen signs, now they're asking for another sign, and they quote a verse from Psalm um, 105, verse 40. It's the verse that follows the as it is written part. He says, he, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. In John chapter 5, we read about how Jesus said, You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have life, but these are they which speak of me. This is an example. This is an example of people who had searched the scriptures, who knew their Bible verses, but they searched it for their own sakes, for their own lives. They saw that God had given bread, so now they pull out the verse that says, I get bread too. And they say, you should give us bread, because there's a Bible verse about God giving them bread, so you should give me bread. But they completely missed the point, because they didn't believe Jesus when he said of the scriptures, these are they which speak of me. Seeing is not believing. And I know that the opposite is usually assumed, but that's not the way people are. Seeing is not believing. We always go back to Israel in the wilderness, but you know they were able to witness more miracles than anyone, and it's it's interesting that it's one of these miracles that the crowd talks about in order to coax Jesus into performing another miracle. They quote the scripture and says, "God gave them manna from heaven, God gave them bread and in the wilderness, and that would be a pretty cool sign." But they don't care to mention what happened to these patriarchs who ate the bread from heaven. They don't care what happens to happen to these fathers. They were and forever are forever known as the generation of unbelief. They died in the wilderness. Jesus says, believe. And they say, we will if you show us a sign, like Moses did for our fathers. But the fathers didn't believe. Even after eating the manna, they didn't have faith to enter the promised land. Now again, we see a people asking for something that they didn't really need. And again, we see Jesus, in his mercy, giving less than what they think they need and more of what they actually need. In verse 32, Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. And the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. Now there's a little repeat here of the situation with the woman at the well, right? The Samaritan woman in, in John 4. Jesus says, I can give you living water. And she says, wow, that would be great. Then I wouldn't have to come down to this well every day. That would be fantastic. And, and she doesn't really know that it's the Spirit of God that Jesus is talking about. So now Jesus says that the bread from God is from heaven and gives life to the world, and they say, give us that bread, that sounds like a delicious snack. They don't know what he's talking about. But Jesus does engage them on the terms that they put forth. They say, our father Moses gave us bread from heaven, and you should do that, show us, do the trick. And Jesus says, 
Actually, it wasn't Moses. It was my father, and he's still giving bread. And, and he points out, you know, it's been 3,000 years, and you still don't understand manna. When it first came, you said, what is it? And you didn't get it then, and you don't get it now, because you think Moses gave you manna. No, that's not the way it worked. Read the story. It wasn't Moses, it was God. And Jesus, again, calls God his father. He doesn't trace his genealogy to Abraham, as most Jews did, although he could. He says that his father is God and gives better bread than manna. He contrasts the manna with the true bread from heaven. So let's get to the next verse. This is the very important verse. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. He says, I am the bread of life, and he'll repeat this again, and we'll talk about it more next week. But this is the first of the seven I am statements of Jesus in the Gospel of John. When Moses, Israel's hero, met God at the burning bush, and God commissions Moses to go to the Pharaoh and lead the people out of Israel or out of Egypt, uh, Moses asks the Lord, Who shall I say sent me? And God responds uh, in Exodus chapter 4, verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. The great I am. It speaks of his eternal self-existence. When Jesus said in John 5 that he has life in himself, he's speaking of the nature of God that is expressed in the statement, I am. Now, the, the words in Greek here are ego aimi. And, and if you look back at the Septuagint, that's the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that when you see these two words, it's very clear that they are a claim to divinity. De Deuteronomy 32, verse 39. I'm just going to go through a whole bunch of Old Testament passages right here. Uh, Deuteronomy 32, 39 says, uh, See now that I, even I, am he, ego I me, and there is no God with me. The I am speaks of the solitary nature of God. There is no God uh, other than him. Isaiah 41, verse 4. Who hath wrought and done it, calling the generations from the beginning? The Lord, the first, and with, and with the last. I am he, ego I me. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. Isaiah 43, verse 10, says, You are my witnesses, saith the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he, there's the I am statement, ego I me, that blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake, and will not remember thy sins. Okay? That the I am forgives sins. Isaiah 51, verse 12, I, even I, am he. Now, this is twice. Ego, I, me, ego, I, me. I, even I, am he that comforteth you. Um, so, according to these passages, God says, I am, and claims the right to this title, or this name, because he is the only God, there's no God with me, because he's uh, first and last, we'd say Alpha and the Omega, he forgives sins and he comforts his people. That's That's Jesus. This is Jesus. And now Jesus says, Ego I me, I am the bread of life. I am the bread. Now, it, it speaks a lot about the ministry of Jesus uh, at all, that he would add to the statement, I am. But I'm also certain that, that most everyone, when encountering Exodus 4 for the first time, is kind of confused and maybe disappointed that God doesn't say anything more about himself than I am. From the burning bush until the incarnation, people were left with this truth, that God is. 
Um, and then, you know, as we read in the passages in Isaiah and elsewhere, he is the one who forgives sins and he is the one who comforts. So there is some addition. But but we we want more information, don't we? We say, you are what? Uh, you know, there's a blank there that's not fully filled in. And that's what Jesus does. He comes and fills in the blank for who God is. Jesus says what God is. He is bread. He didn't come to give bread. He came to be bread. Now, what Jesus says next, the passage we've already read, is something he said before and he'll say again. Um, he says, you don't believe me. Seeing isn't believing. He's very clear about their lack of faith. He says, I'm from heaven. Pretty clear about his origins, don't you think? I'm not here to do my will, but the will of my Father. He's clear about his purpose. The will of the Father and the purpose of the Son is to raise up souls. It's to resurrect believing souls. He's talking about this in chapter... Uh, he's talking about this in chapter 3 and chapter 5. He'll mention it again before the book is done. The way he says it here, which is unique, is the reference to bread. I am the bread of life. What do we do with bread? What is bread for? And this is something, again, that we'll get into more next week, actually. But I'll give you the preview right now. Bread is for enjoyment and bread is for survival. Um, we, we enjoy it and we live by it. Christ, the bread of life, is where we must go to have nourishment in order to live. But that nourishment is pleasant and good and beautiful. And he says, He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Now this verse tells us the value of this life-giving bread that Jesus is. It's perpetually, eternally satisfying. And it also tells us how we can eat the bread. How do we partake of this bread of life that is Jesus? We come to him and we believe in him. I don't know that those are two separate ideas so much as two ways of describing the same action. In fact, when you compare again Isaiah 55 with John 5 and John 6, you see that coming to God and believing in God are virtually the same thing. This is what it is to seek the bread of life. Come to Jesus in faith. And the people coming to Jesus might have said, of course we believe in you. After all, we, you're right in front of us and, and haven't we sought you? Didn't we row those boats to come find you? And we've seen all the cool stuff you can do. But Jesus says in verse 36, But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Seeing is not believing. The next passage, and that's where we'll get into next week, it starts with the parallel of man in the wilderness, the people that ate the bread that didn't believe either. But just review what we've seen real quick. The, the key verse in this passage, one of them at least, is this is the work of the Father, that you believe in the one who he sent. And Jesus says in response to the question, what shall we do? that we may work, do the works of God, he, he says, believe. But now in the final verses of the section, Jesus is going to remind them that the work of God is not just work that God assigns us, but work that God does. Now these last three verses tie it all together. It says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me I should lose nothing but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. How do we receive bread? By coming to Jesus. But this is the work of the Father. He draws souls to Jesus. It is his work, and he is doing it. Jesus says he has come down, again, like manna from heaven. But when he is received, he doesn't just give life or a good meal. He gives eternal life. 
This is available to the one who comes and believes. And in verse 40, we have another section, another action, excuse me, sees. The one who comes, sees, and believes, and sees. That everyone who sees the Son and believes in Him may have everlasting life. Now, seeing is not believing, but part of the action of believing is choosing to see in a certain way. To see Jesus, to gaze on Jesus, to behold the beauty of the Lord for his own sake. Now, that is an act of believing. To behold the glory and the beauty of God in Jesus Christ, this is the act of coming and believing. It is in this act that we are satisfied with the heavenly bread that is the Son of God. So listen to Isaiah again. Isaiah uh, prophesies of this, this sweet water and this, this uh, good life-giving bread. And it says, Everyone who thirsts, come to the water. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. What do you spend money for? What, why do you spend money for what is not bread? And your wages for what does not satisfy. Listen carefully to me. This is the call of Christ to people that he loves. Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear and your soul shall live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you. The sure mercies of David. Jesus, we rejoice that you, the bread of life, satisfy our souls. Every longing of our souls is, is satisfied in you. God, we, we delight in your goodness. We delight in, in the sufficiency of Christ. And we pray, God, that, um, that our weak faith would be strengthened as we come to you, as we taste and see that the Lord is good, and as we are granted enlightened eyes, enlightened by your Spirit, so that we can behold the beauty of the Lord. We come to you for your own sake and, and to be completely satisfied in you. We love you, our bread of life. In Jesus' name, amen.